please be advised. We will be discussing subjects that may not be suitable for all audiences, and will include subjects that some will find challenging, traumatic, or triggering. Welcome to You Don't Fight Alone, a podcast sharing the stories of those of us successfully living with mental illness and how we got here. So I would say my rock bottom was roughly from the age of 25 to 30. Um, To give you some kind of reference, my son was, you know, about two to seven at the time. Um, That was the start of it was really the time when it started to become really apparent to me and my then husband that we really weren't meant to be together forever. But we did have a kid and we kind of had to figure out what to do. Um, I knew at the time that he already cheated on me in the past, but I also was finding out evidence that he was cheating at the time as well. And it was getting to the point, it was really unhealthy. I was doing the completely wrong thing of going and checking his phone. He, after seeing that, recognized, hey, you do have kind of a supernatural feeling about when I'm doing something wrong and you know when to check it, so I'm just going to stop blocking it, check it. So he kind of stopped caring too. And you can tell that's not any way for a relationship to be. Um, so, yeah, that's um, that ended pretty fast. And uh, I mean, I think I was just really lost during that time. I know now looking back that I was having a lot of mixed episodes, which for people with bipolar is when you experience depressive and manic symptoms at the same time. And it's not necessarily at the same time. You can feel really depressed and then really manic next. Uh, They can be mixed in any kind of random combination. It's really unpredictable. You have to keep in mind at the time, I had no idea what was going on. Didn't know I had this diagnosis. So it flung me back and forth. Here I am, not able to work, which I really put a lot of personal pride into. Um, I really delayed getting my green card paperwork done. And I think it was just a combination of depression, anxiety, uh, fear of getting it all done and what next? I would actually have to go and do stuff and get a job and be somebody professionally that I know or I knew at the time deep down inside I thought I could not be that person. So it was really a way to dissociate. I did start using substances again, mainly alcohol, uh, some cannabis, but really it was mainly always alcohol for me. Um, And I also disassociated by playing lots of video games. Uh, you know, my World of Warcraft Warlock was up there at max level, you know, but at the same time, you know, was I taking good care of my kid? I was doing the best I could at the time, and at least I can, I guess, proudly say there was never any kind of abuse or neglect, but was I giving him the best kind of life? No, I wasn't. You know, and some, because there are totally times when instead of taking him, you know, to a children's museum, I would just say, hey, let's stay home and you watch Baby Einstein and mom is going to play video games, which is not healthy. And I really do have regrets about that time. Um, I lied to my parents a lot during that time because they would call and ask because they did have to provide some support. Uh, My husband did work, but, you know, like I said, jobs weren't always easy to come by. I felt deep burning shame about my parents having to still support me in some way and about lying to them about where I was in my immigration process. 
I mean, I just, I felt I could not tell them the truth at all. And every time I lied to them, it just got heavier and heavier on me. And, you know, I had to drink more or play more video games. Um, it really became a vicious cycle. Uh, it definitely contributed to the, you know, failing of my marriage. I did get to a point, this is when my husband at the time and I decided that this really was not going to work, but we weren't sure what the next steps are. Um, I did get to a point, I was really suicidal, and I thought I had a plan to go through with it. I called the suicide hotline. Unfortunately, in my personal experience, it was not helpful, but I have heard from many, many people who had very positive experiences. So I think I just got really unlucky that one time. Uh, but it, it was not helpful to me. However, after I hung up, I did realize that I could never do that to my kid, ever. And that's what kept me there that day. My rock bottom lasted at least five years, and it was, yeah, it was bad. It was definitely bad at times. Right, so my name is Anna, and my diagnosis is bipolar disorder type 1 uh, plus generalized anxiety disorder plus ADHD, which of course is attention and hyperactivity deficit disorder. So I was diagnosed initially with bipolar at the age of 34, and I'm now only 36, so it's only been two years ago, um, and then working with the same doctor, you know, as we kind of explored things, she also diagnosed me with uh, uh, generalized anxiety disorder, and then pretty recently, only a few months ago, with ADHD. Um, so it was a pretty long road. Uh, I was misdiagnosed about seven years ago with major depressive disorder, which is pretty a pretty common misdiagnosis for people with bipolar because the depressive episodes are really easy to notice. And then the, if you have hypo or, or full-blown mania, it's very hard to notice for some doctors. And I myself don't even notice what I have those sometimes. Um, so I was misdiagnosed with that. Uh, you know, I was medicated for it. It ended up setting off mania with antidepressants. Eventually, I came to a point um, where, you know, thankfully my support network, which is basically my husband, said, look, I want you to be happy and you're not happy. And we need to do something about that. I think you need therapy. And I said, you're right. But first of all, I need a psychiatrist. Because I think deep down, I just knew something was really wrong other than what, you know, their previous doctor said. And I went and it was scary. And I expected that they were going to tell me I have depression, maybe anxiety. And she just came out with bipolar disorder. And later she did add the type one and explain the difference. Um, it was a big surprise, but that's how I arrived at that. And then I just stuck with the same doctor because we had a really good uh, connection and came up with the other two. So that was a really, really long journey, and um, I am going to take you way back to kind of explain how everything came to be. Um, so I actually grew up in Moscow, Russia. So I stayed there until I was 18, didn't come here until I was 18. Um, you know, English is my second language, but I do speak it pretty well, which a lot of people notice. They're like, oh, I thought you were born here. I'm like, no, nah, no, I wasn't. Um, you know, my parents were really focused on achievements and accomplishments. They themselves were very accomplished people, educated, smart. And from the very 
early age, I was expected to do really well. And there really wasn't given uh, many options for how you would do it. It's like, well, this is how you do it. You get your advanced degrees and you probably go into finance or economics or banking, something like that. I mean, why would you do anything else? And, you know, it started with that. It even probably started earlier. My parents divorced when I was four. It was really traumatic. I'm sure you guys know in 91, Russia went through their putsch. So it was a coup, which again, was pretty traumatic because my brother was there on the front lines. I helped build the barricades just a little bit. I was eight. You know, I carried some rocks. It's pretty cool. But I got to go home. My brother stayed through the night. My mom was really worried. I remember being really scared that night. But we made it through. And we lived in poverty. And we made it through that. All of a sudden, there was no, no longer communist. My dad started making really good money. So it went from being, you know, standing in food lines for things, basic necessities like sugar and flour and bread to all of a sudden he was giving me pocket money and, you know, he would have money to send me places to travel. And I had a tutor for my English language studies. It was just mind blowing and very confusing to a child. And then at the age of 15, I was sent to boarding school again with the intention of, you know, Russia is not a great place especially for women, go get an education, really have a life. And on a paper, my parents set me up to be the most successful person out there. You know, they spent money on my education. They gave me enriching cultural experiences. Um, they themselves were, like I said, smart and educated people. And uh, at first, when I went to college, I did really well, really excelled there because it's all structured. Um, got my job, you know, by the time I graduated, secured my very prestigious hoity-toity job with one of the big five accounts, public accounting firms. Um, and then once I was kind of out of that environment where it's all structured, I uh, really did not thrive at all. I really, there was definitely a failure to thrive. Um, I went really kind of off the deep end right after graduation. I had manic episodes. I had mixed episodes. Uh, during my manic episode, I met a man who... Uh, I never would normally be attracted to or like, but he seemed fun and dangerous at the time. And, you know, pretty much within three months of meeting him, there was a surprise pregnancy. So again, I'm manic. This is cosmic serendipity at this point, from my point of view. Um, this is it. We get married. We start a family. Come to find out once the mania wears off, I now have a baby and the husband and at that point, since I am a foreigner and I did have to apply for my, my work visa after one year, which I didn't do because I was too busy being manic and thinking everything's fantastic and applying for immigration paperwork is boring, I no longer have authorization to work. So now, I'll, you know, I do have a baby. I do have a husband who himself does not have good job prospects. Um, we are going through the 2008 crisis as well. Jobs are hard to come by. I really, that was the worst time. And throughout that, I knew something was really wrong because I just looked at everything I was given and I looked at where I was and I said, what happened? I mean, where did this go wrong? But it still took me several years before I actually went to a professional because I kept blaming myself and thinking, well, you're just lazy. I mean, you're just, why aren't you getting up and doing things immediately that you know will further you in life? You know, why aren't you studying a third language? Why aren't you doing online courses? All of those things. And I was so convinced 
that it was something that was wrong with my motivation or my personality, not in terms of mental illness, but in terms of, you know, being a good person. But that was that. That was just my cosmic punishment. And finally, finally, I kind of accepted that, hey, maybe there was a reason somewhere within my brain that isn't, you know, me just being lazy that was responsible for that. And at first, I really did just think I was kind of depressed and maybe needed a bit of a lift. I was in denial, but once I went, it really kind of opened the floodgates of like, oh, hey, psychiatrists aren't scary. They can be, but once you're there, they're pretty nice. Um, some of them suck, like the first one who misdiagnosed me and then ended up losing his license in the state of Colorado, by the way. Um, but yeah, that really kind of opened it up. So it was a really long road filled with lots of false starts and self-blame until I finally realized I needed professional help. Um, I, it was not smooth sailing at all. Um, I felt very lonely and scared during those times, especially boarding school. Uh, boarding school comes close to being the rock bottom of my life, but not quite. Um, I would kind of say it was the tsunami that sunk my ship so that eventually got to the rock bottom, but it was definitely like a storm was brewing. I mean, my dad, who, who knows? Maybe he was ma being manic too. I have no idea what my dad might or might not have in terms of mental illness. Um, he kind of made that whole decision to send me there within months. And I remember filling out an application and then, you know, maybe in the spring and then bam, in the fall, I was there. I've never met the people I was with before. I've never gone to an English speaking school. The first two months, I was like, what are they talking about? Because everything was in English, biology, you know, I mean, everything. I had no idea what was going on for the first two months, even though I had pretty decent English at the time. Boarding school was in Malta, which okay. is an island about 40 miles south of Sicily, really tiny. And it's funny because at the time, there were a lot of Russian kids there because that's when a lot of Russians started getting that income. I did so well in college. I mean, I really had no clue how the after-college experience would be different. I thought it would be the same. You know, you just keep achieving and keep doing things. But without having somebody say, hey, this is your deadline to register for classes. And hey, this is the syllabus. This is what we're going to do. These are the deadlines. And these are the things we're going to study, need units. And if you want to, you can go and Google them and find out more about them. Uh, there was no professor with office hours that I could go talk to and kind of get, you know, an idea for what to do after college, during college, you know, that was always available. Um, there were no resources that I knew, hey, this is the building you go to if you need help. And you can talk to this one person and they will send you, maybe you need resume help or maybe you need mental health, but they can help you. They can give you the right resources. I did not know that such a person could possibly exist outside of college. I thought that was like kind of on you. You just had to know everything. Not having that structure where you knew everything was really written out for you and you did have a certain degree of freedom, but that freedom was sort of like a, almost not real because you weren't, you know, I did have a part-time job, but you weren't expected to, you know, at least I wasn't. Again, I did have that privilege. I wasn't expected to keep, keep roof over my head 100% by myself. 
you know, I wasn't expected to feed myself 100%. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go and read more at the library. I'm going to go hang out with friends. It's not what adults do when they have free time necessarily, because our free time is so limited. We're like, okay, we need to like pay bills and do chores and get all of this done because I only have this many hours outside of work. Um, once I had to go to work and, you know, working at the big five was really, I was a meat grinder. I mean, they tell you you're going to work a minimum of 55 hours a week during busy season. They don't tell you that if you go into the financial audit part, busy season can last up to six months a year and that it's, you know, 55 is a suggestion. It can be a lot more. And yeah, they do pay for all of your meals and accommodations, you know, and you get to travel, but it's really not for everyone. And it really wasn't for me. That additional stress, I think, really got to me. And outside of work, I barely did anything. At that point, I did meet my first husband. And, you know, we did get surprised pregnant. And I think that was such a chance for me to go, some kind of structure. Because, hey, pregnancy is about nine months. Then the baby comes out. And then it's the baby. We can have two legs and four and two arms. And you can take care of it. And you put diapers on it. It seemed like such a, like, a clear-cut path. That I honestly think I kind of took it as a salvation from my lack of structure that I felt I had because I somehow felt that that gave me a clearly de defined path that I could not see for myself at the time professionally or personally. It really took me personally seeing a different psychiatrist when they explained because they were really aware of what manic states are like. And once I started, they asked me very pointed questions, you know, about hypersexuality, about overspending or things like gambling, which again, doesn't have to be gambling. It could be, you know, shopping or it could be something that gives you kind of similar things like those uh, in-game purchases and loot boxes and video games. So whatever it is, you know, she started asking very pointed questions. And once I answered it and I kind of looked back, I was like, oh, wow. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh. That's what mania is. I thought it meant like you think you can fly and you jump off buildings. I had a really, really wrong concept, concept of what mania can be. And I myself went, oh, abs absolutely. Yes, this is what I do. This fits me 100%. Um, and that's how it kind of came to that. Before that psychiatrist, I didn't know it was wrong. But what I did know is that the antidepressants that the first doctor put me on made me um, sleep maybe two, three hours a night. Um, they made me move my body like almost in uncontrollable ways. I just couldn't sit still. Um, I mean, they gave me like these ridiculous thoughts and feelings that, hey, you know what? If I just stop everything I'm doing right now in my um, career that has to do with mortgage and real estate and start this um, shaved ice cart and take it to farmer's markets, it's going to be so amazing and I am like going to make a million dollars I mean it's this concrete we're doing this now we're as a matter of fact I already looked up where to buy a cart and I'm on the way to get it so can we put on credit that's kind of where I was after those antidepressants was I aware at the time that that was because the diagnosis was wrong no I was not once somebody literally told me stop look back I went oh my god this is so obvious so it did take a professional kind of pointing me in the right direction at the time, I still thought that, hey, well, I have depression. I'm just not depressed now. This is just the normal me. I'm just this, you know, poetically chaotic person who does random things. And that's just my beautiful personality. 
And it did take my new husband to kind of go, you know, I don't think it's normal to, you know, put that much on credit card. But then when I ask you what it went to, you kind of say, I have no idea. Don't ask me. I literally have no clue. Do I have something to show for that $15,000 I put on credit? No, I don't. I don't have anything to show. I couldn't even tell you what I spent it on. It's insane. Insane. And it took somebody yet to kind of be like, you know, you say you have depression and right now you're just being you. But um, when I married you just a year ago, you weren't like this and you're not depressed for sure. I think something's wrong. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's important to mention that I am the only one of my family who came here. So they're still in Moscow, Russia. I don't get to see them all the time, obviously. I get to see them like once every few years. Um, and then I do or did have a sibling, my brother, unfortunately, he tragically passed away last September, brain aneurysm, he was 47, really sudden. So my parents went through this really transformative experience of losing one of their children when they're in their 70s. That has absolutely changed our dynamic, at least with my mother. Before that, I still have not told them any of the, you know, anything about the past. Um, I may have gently mentioned that, hey, pushing me towards finance and that world was not the right thing to do. Um, and, you know, my brother's death did was actually a positive experience after all in that I applied to grad school. I got into grad school. I'm going to change my career from this real estate, commercial distressed debt, distress debt acquisition to social work and actually help people like myself. Um, but, you know, and my parents were changed by that too. But before that, all I could tell them is that, hey, the direction you kind of pushed me into was not the right one. And I feel confident that it wasn't. That was as much as I felt I could reveal to them without, you know, kind of saying more that I at the time felt uncomfortable with. Right now, I do have a much more open relationship with my mom um, because, again, we kind of grieved together and, you know, had to talk a lot through it. Uh, my dad definitely became kind of more affectionate because he was always kind of the Disney dad who, you know, showed up with gifts and, hey, you already get an allowance. Here's extra money. So you'll like me because you're so awesome. And as a kid, you're like, I am awesome and I'm amazing and I deserve this. And as an adult, you're like, uh, where is this again? <laughs> um, so with my dad, it's still kind of complicated we really are kind of missing that emotional connection despite being very kind of loving in our words and everything, but the connection just isn't there. With my mom, it has improved, but to this day, I, and I think it's a lot of it is cultural because, you know, I mean, they are Russian. They grew up kind of with very stoic culture that didn't talk much about mental illness. If you had mental illness, I mean, you were in an asylum and that was that. You were clearly mentally ill, but function like highly functioning people with mental illness it wasn't even a thing people didn't even know um so i think especially now after my brother passed it is not something i would reveal to them um maybe my mom if it kind of comes up in a way that i know will make us closer as opposed to push us apart but i kind of feel like at this point the secret will stay with me 
you know, but it did improve over time. And it honestly took some courage on my behalf to start some of those conversations. And some of them went into a complete dead end or kind of fiery crash. There was some, you know, angry hangups, but it did kind of open that way. And it did make our relationship better for me to just open up a little bit. You know how they say, like, be the person you needed when you were a kid? It's kind of what I'm trying to do with changing my career and everything. Um, but I would, I would tell her myself, first of all, believe that you're capable of change. Because I know that at the time, with how confused, scared, lonely, and depressed I was, I could not believe in myself. That was just an impossible task. If somebody said, just believe in yourself and be yourself, I'd be like, well, that's a totally a loser and a failure. So I am being that. Ha ha. I believe that I will fail. That's essentially what I was telling myself at the time. Instead, I would tell myself to believe that I'm capable of change. That, yeah, you're right. The world's not going to change. You see it as this uncaring, unjust place, and you don't think it's capable of change. And maybe that's true. It's the world. Maybe your perception of it will change, but the world itself will not. But you are capable of change, and you may not see it for years to come, but you can change, and it doesn't have to be this helpless, hopeless darkness that you just kind of stumble in. You can change if you kind of raise your awareness of what's wrong and then really work at it and ask for help. Um, another thing I would tell myself is I would kind of explain the seriousness and importance of trauma because as I am learning more about mental illness and especially bipolar disorder I'm finding that um, you know some research studies show that trauma during childhood can set bipolar off in people who are already genetically predisposed to it so you know if you're happy to have a really happy or if you're fortunate to have a really happy childhood it may not set off whatever it is that's in your genes that might be bad if you do have some trauma growing up Oh, it will set it off, and then some. Um, so I would really explain to uh, my young self that, hey, uh, trauma, mental and emotional trauma, now they are finding that it can structurally and chemically change your brain the same way that a physical traumatic brain injury can. So don't expect of yourself to, you know, be this superhuman being who achieves everything that, that her parents expect and more. You're actually damaged and not in a way in like that bad negative way, but something else came in and changed the way you think in a bad way. And that thing was not your fault. But now you do have a responsibility to learn how to cope with that thing that came into your life. So it's like, yeah, in a way, some damage was done to you, but you can heal, you can change. And that was not your fault. But going forward, you do have to be responsible for yourself. You kind of have to parent yourself a bit and, you know, talk to your inner child, do all of those things that can help kind of heal from that trauma. Um, and then I think the last thing I would tell my young self is don't be, I know it's really, really scary, but don't be afraid to speak up for yourself. And just because somebody, especially that first time tells you to, you know, now that's ridiculous, sit down and be quiet. Don't stop speaking up. Don't think that just because somebody thinks what you're saying is ridiculous, it's actually ridiculous. 
Um, you know, people will invalidate you and gaslight you and try to tell you that the world is true from their perspective and not yours. And you do have to have that courage to, you know, even meekly say, oh, you know what, I think I'm kind of right though here. And I think I'm going to keep this. And I think I do need this thing that I'm saying I need. And that will lead to, you know, creating healthy boundaries and all of that. But that very first step of actually believing your own experiences and standing up for yourself and saying, just because this big, scary adult that I know to be really smart and know to have better information than I do is telling me that I am wrong and that I should just be quiet and I don't know what I'm talking about, doesn't mean that's the truth. You might actually have truth in you, even though you're this, you see, you see yourself as this little person who doesn't know anything. Just speak up. If something is really hurting you, speak up and don't be afraid to do that. So for me, I found that medication is huge. Um, and there are people that medication helps, but the side effects are worse. So they go, no, this is not worth it. My life is better as you know random and chaotic as it is off medication as opposed to on it for me personally um especially the mood regulation part was such a huge help i started feeling like myself which i kind of you know you forget who you are when you're really in the throes of mental illness that's completely unaddressed and I kind of started to remember bits of me from, you know, when I was a kid, before I experienced, you know, the whole plethora of traumatic events. So for me, medication was crucial because it did stop me being suicidal for the most part. The, the urges, sometimes the thoughts, not really the urges, the thoughts are still there. And, you know, that passive ideation when you're like, I really kind of wish I wasn't born, but here I am. So I guess I'm going to slog through, but I really would be nice. That still happens, you know, um, but it is nowhere near at the level that it used to be before I was medicated. And then um, in terms of my anxiety, it was pretty debilitating. Like I, I, you know, wouldn't leave the house sometimes. I rarely went grocery shopping. I kind of relegated it to my husband, thankfully. Um, and I was struggling to go to work on a lot of days. So again, for me, it was something that I really needed at the time that without it, I couldn't function. Um, I still haven't found the 100% right cocktail of meds, I don't think. Um, there are still side effects I'm not happy with. I just discovered in the last two weeks, I think I'm losing hair. And I don't think I'm okay with that. Um, so I am not like this 100% person like, yeah, just medicate 100%, whatever the doctor tells you, just stuff it down your gullet and you'll be happy. Um, I do eventually want to explore, if not completely going off of medication, at least tuning it down because I feel that as I do develop coping skills that aren't medical, I will need less medication. Um, but I also do trust the doctor I have now um, to make kind of the right decisions and to listen to me when I say, hey, I think that maybe I can go off of that one. Can we taper off? So again, to reiterate, for me, it is a very, very important, crucial part. I would not be sitting here with you guys. I would not have signed up for this podcast. I wouldn't find you. I mean, if I somehow made it here, I'd probably be sobbing halfway through and throw the microphone at you and just say, this is it, I'm out of here, tear my shirt off and run away. I didn't do any of those things. So this went really well because of medication. 
Uh, but like I said, it's not, I don't think it's a panacea for everybody. Therapy played a huge role in it too. And I couldn't tell you what medication alone would be like because I also combine it with therapy. Um, so I do, I push therapy pretty hard on those friends of mine that ask for advice once they find out that I'm struggling with this. So yeah, there you go. So with bipolar, because there are those, you know, two main states you can have plus the mixed episodes, you can be, you know, depressed, you can be manic. That so clearly that clearly varies, right? If I am manic, I wake up and I am just ready to go. And I wake up, I mean I get up or not get up. I wake up at like 3:30 or 4 after going to bed at midnight. And it's fine. I am well rested and ready to go and I go to work. But you know what works boring? Because who would want to do that? Who'd want to work in Excel spreadsheets? No, no, no. I'm going to go start another business. You know, another one of those things. I'm going to start a blog, whatever. If I'm depressed, getting out of bed is incredibly hard. I am laying there with tears kind of streaming down my face for no reason, thinking of excuses that I can call in and not go to work. Um, so that's kind of like bipolar straight up. Like the first thing in the day, that's how it affects me. Anxiety, same thing. Wake up right before, if I, you know, before I take my medicine, I feel this overwhelming dread about what I could not tell you. Just anything and everything, there is no specific thing, is this dread that washes over my body, feels almost paralyzing. So if I am depressed and I have that anxiety, I'm not going to work that day. I'm, I'm not. I've taken plenty of medical leaves already. I, it's just not happening. Um, then once I do kind of get started on my day and you actually need to, you know, plan it out and decide what you need to do, um, that's where the ADHD really comes in. Uh, but bipolar also makes it really hard for me to um, use that executive function of the brain, which is, you know, organizing, planning, breaking big goals into manageable little tasks and keeping yourself on track and time management saying, hey, you, you need to switch to this if you want to get it done by your deadline. That part's a mess. Like, oh my God, that part's a mess. I really, and that's where the whole structured environment came in. I really struggle without somebody else setting that for me. My executive function is really like in a big disarray. Um, and ADHD comes in. I mean, even if I do manage to come up with a plan, I don't want to start anything. And if I do start it, I don't want to keep working on it. I want to keep going over there and over here and over here. So again, and this is all like I'm kind of giving you a picture of what it was like unmedicated. Um, with medication, it is much easier. I still feel those things, but I know that once I take my medication, it does get better. The executive function, still suffering, and I still struggle with a lot of motivation at work. Um, but I kind of, I think it has a lot to do with not being in the right, in the right profession for me. Even through being born in communist Russia, my parents were educated and they were just, they tried. They may not have been there emotionally for me the right way, but they tried to set me up the best way they knew how. A lot of people don't have that. A lot of immigrants who come here do not have that. You know, yeah, I may have been the first and the only one to come here, but I had all of this support. A lot of people come here with no support whatsoever 
and their family relies on them to support them instead. And it's like their one hope of making it out of poverty and horrible, horrible situations. Um, so if you are an immigrant that lives here that has those high expectations, whether to provide for their family or like me to fulfill some kind of family legacy that they hung on you, like this is what you got to do. You feel so much pressure and culturally, it may be completely unacceptable for you to say you're struggling. It's, I know that on my own personal experience, like I said, I can't talk to my parents about it. And there is a huge stigma more so than if you are just raised here and you do see all of these, you know, mental health awareness months, you come here and you go, no, admitting something's wrong with me internally, that's weakness. And I cannot show weakness, neither, you know, in my culture or here as this immigrant. I mean, I achieved something. I came here. I am doing a good job. And I cannot admit that something is wrong because then things might fall apart. In my experience, things fell apart more the more I try to push it down and say, no, I'm okay. I really am okay. And kind of use what my culture taught me to use as coping mechanisms, which is basically re repression and self-shaming. <laughs> So again, you know, if you are here, it is so, so hard. You don't know what services are available. I didn't know who to go for. I didn't know there were social workers. I didn't even know that was a thing, that there was a person you could go to and they'd be like, oh yeah, there's uh, resources for you. You know, even if they themselves don't do anything for you personally, as a, you know, in terms of therapy, there's resources. Things in America are, you know, they may not be perfect, but they're whole lot better than in Russia and there are resources there are people who would listen to you uh, there are people who are compassionate with a lot of empathy and there really really is no shame in seeking help because long term if you keep it down and if you just keep kind of I need to go I need to go I need to achieve I need to achieve I believe just like in my case it may well break you and it's better even if you do it in secret from your family which is what I kind of had to do right I'm not telling them the truth I am so much happier after I admitted that, hey, there was something wrong and there was no shame in seeking help for it. For more information and to donate, please visit youdon'tfightalone.org. You Don't Fight Alone is sponsored in part by Mentally Chill, an improv team talking about mental illness and how it's so hard, but no one likes to bother anyone about it. Be prepared to be bothered. Find them on facebook.com slash mentally chill improv, Instagram at mentally chill improv, and at voodoo comedy beginning this September. The You Don't Fight Alone podcast is a production of You Don't Fight Alone Incorporated, produced and engineered by James Fisher and Keaton Lycom. The information presented by You Don't Fight Alone is not intended as medical advice. If you have mental health questions, please talk to a mental health professional.